Morning. It's good to be with you again. I um, always get excited at Easter time because I wonder how the world is going to uh, take their shots at our faith uh, this time. I don't know if you noticed, but Christmas and Easter, uh, there'll be programs that'll come up on television that'll ask questions like, you know, is Jesus, who was Jesus really, and where did Jesus really come from? And I guess it's their way of sort of marketing their their slant and their opinion of Christianity. And uh, But it always just boils down to basically the same thing, that uh, they want to try to cast doubt on our faith rather than uh, uh, affirm it. Just this morning as I was having breakfast, I was just kind of uh, skimming through the through the news feed on my phone, and there was uh, I think it was CNN or or somebody had a a uh, an ad that said you know do you know Christianity? And I thought well I'd, I'd be interested to know if I know Christianity, so I I tapped it and it opened up and it, again it was just sort of this this uh, article of questions, not answers just asking all these questions, and it cast doubt on our faith. And I thought, you know, if I didn't know the Bible, if I didn't have a, a confidence that what we believe is based in history, what we believe is based in history, it's not simply words on a page, but these words on a page reflect historical events that actually happened in a real place and time. And because they are verifiable, we know that our faith is not simply uh, something we want to be true. It is true. And history affirms that it's true. Well, we begin today what's called uh, the Passion Week. Uh, Palm Sunday is the, uh, begins the Passion Week of Christ. Why do we call the Passion Week the Passion Week? You know, I, I, growing up, as a kid, we'd, I'd always hear this, and I grew up Baptist, and so you know, Palm Sunday for some reason was always a big, a big deal. And I thought, what does the Passion Week mean? And honestly, it wasn't until I was adult, an adult that I actually sort of looked it up and tried to figure out why, because it's not necessarily called that in Scripture. But do you know why it's called the Passion Week? Well, it's time you know. It's called that because it reflects Jesus' passion. Simple. His passion, his unwavering commitment to obey God the Father and lay down his life for our sins. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, when he wept with tears, absolutely committed to do the will of the Father no matter what it takes. So the Passion Week of Christ is really uh, an example of the passion life that we're to live, that we too, like Jesus Christ, are to have a, a passion for what we believe and to do the will of God the Father. The Passion Week in Scripture, or actually in the Gospels, I didn't realize this before, but I thought I'd actually uh, just sort of do some comparison. I grabbed a harmony of the Gospels, which, you know, if you have a harmony of the Gospels, it's one editor's attempt to sort of put in chronological order. You sort of cut up all the Gospels and put them in order and sort of try to harmonize them as the events occur in order. And the Passion Week, in other words, if you were to 
to sort of hold it up and look at the weight of the content. The Passion Week takes up about one-third of the Gospels, if you put them all together. If you look at the book of John, it takes about half of the book of John. Is just the Passion Week. Think about the entire life of Christ. The Gospels focus primarily on three and a half years. And in those three and a half years ministry, a large majority of what the Gospels focus on are eight days. It's hugely important. It's the week that changed the world. It really is. And I want us to walk through, obviously with that much content, we can't walk through all the details, but there are six lessons. And you should have a handout that you got when you walked in. It's got a big picture at the top, which is sort of an aerial view of Jerusalem, particularly uh, the old city of Jerusalem. And I want us to walk through six lessons by location. We could focus around a number of themes, but I'm going to take six locations of the Passion Week. We'll talk about the events that occurred at those locations, and we'll also have a lesson that we can apply. But before we do that, I want to teach you something that, that every tour that we lead to Israel gets to learn, and that, that is the geography of Jerusalem. The geography of Jerusalem. And with the aid of Blair and some audiovisuals, um, you're going to learn the geography of Jerusalem. If you have a pen, and I actually should have handed out a Sharpie marker, These, this is such a dark image, it's going to be hard for you to write on. So maybe if you have a pen or a pencil, you can make these images and just sort of make about ten circles, and that'll, that'll be dark enough. But you're going to learn the geography of Jerusalem with two hamburger buns and an ice cream cone. If you can think, if you can imagine an ice cream cone and two hamburger buns, you will understand the geography of Jerusalem. So let's begin. Let's begin with the ice cream. And I've got a laser here, which is completely ineffective once it gets on the white picture. But you can sort of see the ice cream. You see the ice cream? The circle is the Temple Mount. All right, now this is going to be back and forth here during the first part, sort of like when we were in grade school. So what's the circle? Uh, What's the circle? Temple Temple Mount. Hey, great. And the cone is the city of David. Okay? So the ice cream, the, the, the ice cream is the Temple Mount. The cone is the city of David. All right, now let's put two hamburger buns in the mix. So, all right, you got the two hamburger buns on either side. The right bun is the Mount of Olives. The left bun on the west is, creatively, the Western Hill. All right, so you've got four things to remember so far. The ice cream is the Temple Mount. The cone is the City of David. The right bun is the Mount of Olives. The left bun is the Western Hill. Very good. Now, you've got these main elements, these bumps in the ground. Let's put some labels on the valleys. You've got two valleys to learn, right in between the the two buns and the ice cream. The one valley you've heard of uh, is unseeable from that side. If you look on this side, you can see the Kidron Valley is the right valley. It's between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. 
the Kidron Valley. And then on the other side of the, uh, the ice cream is the Central Valley. Central Valley. All right, so now you got six things to learn. So the ice cream is the Temple Mount. The cone is the City of David. The right bun is the Mount of Olives. The left bun, Western Hill. The valley beside the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley. The valley beside the Western Hill, Central Valley. Fantastic. And you only have one more thing to learn, and that's one more valley. It's the Hinnom Valley, and it starts on the uh, western side of the western hill and goes all the way underneath and meets up with the Kidron Valley. That's the Hinnom Valley. So if you can just remember an ice cream cone and two hamburger buns and label those, you have a picture of the city that is most mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jerusalem. And you can actually, if you go to Jerusalem, or if you go there, it's funny, when we take tours, someone will walk up to me and say, now, are we on the left bun or the right bun right now? <laughs> but it's, it's crazy, but the craziness of it actually helps you remember. Now, now that you know the geography of Jerusalem, we're going we're gonna to walk through the Passion Week because the Passion Week covers all of these aspects of the city of Jerusalem. Turn, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 19. The book of Luke, chapter 19. Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem for the Passover took him up through Jericho. Jericho was to the east of Jerusalem, it was down at the lowest part of the earth, literally, uh, down by the Dead Sea. It's the lowest elevation on the planet. And from Jericho to Jerusalem was an 18-mile hike straight uphill, and it was uh, very steep, very hard. This was the road that Jesus walked on his final preparation. And as he is in the midst of that journey, the conversation occurred here in Luke 19, Uh, Look down at verse 11. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So, in other words, because they supposed this, so he said... A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And we won't go through the rest of the story, but this sets up, Jesus is basically saying to people who supposed that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately, he had offered the kingdom, but he knew that, that his offer would be rejected. And so he was preparing his disciples, preparing his listeners for the fact that the kingdom is going to be postponed. And he gives this story, this parable, which is actually rooted in history. It's a historical story of, 
of uh, Herod the Great son Archelaus, which we won't get into, but basically the story is, look, this prince or this nobleman is going to receive a kingdom, but his citizens didn't want him. That's important to remember, because as we get into the next section now, we see this parable lived out in color. Look down at verse 27 and 28. Jesus finishes his, this parable by saying, after this king returns with his kingdom, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Verse 28, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is called the triumphal entry, and I've never been able to figure out why. There's nothing triumphant about it. You got the disciples, they're shouting, they're happy. But Jesus has an entirely different mood. Palm Sunday is called that because of the palm branches that were waved. And Luke goes on to describe how Jesus gets on a donkey because he says the Lord has need of it. The Lord had need of it, the Lord Jesus had need of it because of Zechariah chapter 9 that prophesied that the Messiah, the king, would appear to Jerusalem humble and on the foal of a donkey. Christ on the donkey presenting himself as the Messiah was um, sort of like the national convention. Think about the national conventions that we endured last year. And, you know, everybody knew who the candidates were before the convention. But it wasn't until the convention that they made the public official announcement, I accept the nomination of this party. Everybody knew that Jesus, all the disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah and that he claimed to be the Messiah. But it wasn't until the, his pre- presentation on the back of a donkey that was basically him saying, I am officially declaring that I am the Messiah because here he is uh, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. It was his official presentation of himself to Israel as the Messiah. And remember, he's doing this right after that parable that he told where his citizens didn't want the king. So with that as a setup, look at verse 37 through 40. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they'd seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's not an accident that Luke records this particular statement of the Pharisees because you could draw a line from verse 39 all the way back up to verse 27, these enemies of mine, and you could draw a line from verse 27 back up to verse 14. We do not want this man to reign over us. Basically, this is why the kingdom isn't going to come. Because the leaders of Israel are rejecting the king. See the connection to the parable? Let's keep reading. Verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. 
saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but for now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus said this day, this day, the day that he presents himself as the Messiah. And I don't know if you have a marginal note there with this day, but if you don't, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and following. Because Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and following gives an exact timing of when the Messiah is going to present himself to Jerusalem or to Israel as the Messiah. It's uh, Daniel's 77s or the 70 weeks of Daniel. And 483 years, Daniel says, from the rebuilding, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So from 444 BC, if you do the math, of 483 Jewish years, you get the very day that Jesus presents himself to Jerusalem as the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, if you had known in this day, in other words, if you, if you had thought about what Daniel said and done the math, you would not be saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Instead, you would have had a banner on the walls of Jerusalem for that day saying, welcome Messiah. Because Daniel gave us the very time that the Messiah would present himself to Jerusalem. But they didn't make the connection. So here's the first lesson. Here is the first lesson from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives reminds us that opportunities, opportunities lost, don't negate God's promises. The Mount of Olives reminds us that opportunities lost don't negate God's promises. Talk about an opportunity lost. The kingdom of God coming on earth. They lost that opportunity. That generation of Israel did not get to enter the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that God's promises have failed to Israel. This is the whole point of Romans chapter 9 through 11. There's a future for Israel. God's promises to Israel are not negated. Think about this principle all throughout the scripture because it's true. Moses, um, because he struck the rock and didn't speak to the rock, he lost the opportunity to get into the promised land. The 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 14, they brought a bad report back. So they had to, the whole, whole nation of Israel had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness and that generation lost the opportunity to enter the promised land. But the promise was still good. God let them enter. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he was told, the Lord told David, I gave you this, I gave you this, I gave you this, and I would have given you even more. It was an opportunity lost. But the covenant with David wasn't broken. God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, it's still there. It's still good. But it was an opportunity David lost. Israel's idolatry all throughout the, the major and minor prophets that ultimately led to the exile, they lost the opportunity to be in the land. They were taken out of the land. But God's promise of the land through the Abrahamic covenant, that's still good. It's still there. 
And Jesus' offer of the kingdom to Israel, it was rejected. They lost the opportunity. But God's promise is still good. The Mount of Olives was a place of joy for the disciples, but it was a place of weeping for Jesus because of the opportunity lost. And it's interesting, the place of Jesus appearing was also the place of his going. You know, he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And it's also the place of his coming again. If you read in Zechariah chapter 14, it says that when the Messiah comes, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and he will wage war against his enemies. This speaks of the, what Revelation 19 teaches as the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he will come again. So a great way to remember the two comings of Christ on the Mount of Olives, Luke 19 is the first coming. Revelation 19 is the second coming. Luke 19 is the first presentation of himself to Israel on the Mount of Olives. Revelation 19 is the second presentation of of himself on the Mount of Olives. First time he was rejected. Second time, all Israel will be saved. Now let's take this away from the theoretical and bring it down to us. Because what's true in this principle, the Mount of Olives reminds us opportunities lost don't negate God's promise. It's true of you. It's true of you. Your participation, my participation in the work of God is a privilege. It's not a right. It's not something we've earned. It's a privilege. Whenever God gives you an opportunity for ministry, that place that you have, that opportunity of service, is a privilege. It's not a right. And sometimes we lose those privileges. Now, I don't want you to think that, that maybe you know, you've lost some privilege or uh, something that God's given you it doesn't represent, necessarily represent some sin that you've done or that I've done. But the good news is that even though we may lose a privilege of participation for whatever reason, God's promise in our lives is still good. Or to say it another way, just because we may lose the privilege of participation, if we reject God's leading in our life, that doesn't mean that God's going to reject us. His promises are still good. The Mount of Olives reminds us that our opportunities lost don't negate God's promises. And I just encourage you to, to say, say this to encourage you because it's real easy for us at some point in our lives to look back and to say, you know what? I blew it. I can think back to 19-whatever the year was, and I said this or I did that, and here, here's the fallout. I can see the fallout. I see the fallout in my family. I see the fallout at my job. I see the fallout with my own heart and conviction and passion in life. I blew it. And as a result, there's loss. There's opportunity lost. But here's the great thing. Even though that's true, God still has a future for you. He's not done with you. If God was done with you, you'd be dead. If you're still breathing, he still has a purpose in your life. So I urge you, don't feel like, you know, God's got you on a shelf. If you're still alive, there's still a purpose. Well, let's continue. Turn to Mark chapter 11. 
Mark 11. I wish the Passion Week was just like they just had a gospel of the Passion Week. You know, and chapter 1 was Monday, chapter 2 was Tuesday, but we don't get to do that. So Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to look at the next day. Actually, uh, Mark chapter 11, we continue. Uh, we're going to look down at ver- verse 11. Mark 11, 11. So this is, verse 11 anyway, it's still the same day, Palm Sunday. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, now it's Monday, when he had left Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he'd find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. That's sort of funny. You wonder what the tone was that Jesus said that. Um, You know, Mondays are hard for a lot of people. Maybe Jesus was just having a bad day. You know, cursed this poor fig tree because it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't the season for figs. And Jesus cursed the fig tree because it didn't have figs. (laughs) You know... You just, sometimes you love to get in on the disciples and just kind of walk along with them. And he says that, and they just all kind of like, everyone's quiet for the next 15 minutes. Jesus is in a bad mood. He wasn't in a bad mood. He was teaching his disciples something that they wouldn't catch on to until the next, the next morning. The fig tree. Why do you curse the fig tree? Well, let's look at the event that occurs between Monday of the cursing and Tuesday of the withering of the fig tree. What was it? It was the hypocrisy that Jesus saw in the temple. It was the hypocrisy that Jesus saw in the temple. Um, Look at verse 15 and following. We're going to read a few verses here. He came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say, Is it not written, My house shall be called a prayer for all the house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, now it's Tuesday, They saw the fig tree withered from their roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. Jesus saying to them, Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, probably the Mount of Olives, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes in what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. You see, the event that occurred between the cursing and the withering, between Monday and Tuesday, was... Jesus going into the temple and seeing the hypocrisy 
of the religious leaders. It looked like there would be fruit. Plenty of healthy leaves, but you get up close, there was nothing there. The cursing of the fig tree was simply a representation of Jesus cursing Israel. But you know, Jesus doesn't stop there. He applies that fig tree to them and what we just read in 15 through 25. In other words, it's not simply enough to say, yeah, those Pharisees, they should be bearing fruit and they're not. Curse them, Jesus. Jesus answers Peter's question with personal application. When you're praying, do you believe it? Do you believe, Jesus, that the Lord can do what you're praying? Do you really believe it? Or are you just going through the motions? Is there fruit in your prayer or is it just fig leaves? Just the appearance of holiness? Now let's get real personal. How about forgiveness? How are you doing with that? You just got fig leaves? It looks good on the outside? Or in your heart? Are you forgiving? So here's the, here's the principle of Bethfitch. Bethfitch is where they were when they cursed the fig tree. Um, in fact, it's funny. Bethfitch's name means house of unripe figs, which is a bit ironic. So here's the, here's the uh, principle. Bethfitch reminds us that the Lord looks for fruit in our lives and reacts when he doesn't find it. Jesus looks for fruit in your life, and he reacts when he doesn't find it. Later on in the week, uh, in the upper room discourse, or, or maybe as they're walking to Gethsemane, it's not terribly clear where it happened, but in John 15, Jesus talks about to his disciples, I chose you that you may bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. And if any branch in me doesn't bear fruit, and he goes through the whole horticultural metaphor of what God does to a branch that doesn't bear fruit so that it will bear fruit. God's goal in your life is not that you just lay on the ground, but it's that you bear fruit. And fruit that will remain. The Lord looks for fruit in our lives, and he reacts when he doesn't find it. The lives of religious people always bear leaves. Always. We've all got them. We all have leaves. We know how to arrange them too, don't we? Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We know exactly where to put those leaves to hide our shame. But the reality is, the Lord doesn't want just leaves when he looks at our lives. He wants fruit. All right, now let's look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. And let's keep talking We're still on Tuesday. In fact, Matthew really liked Tuesday. There's a ton of content on Tuesday, starting in Matthew 21. And we're going to come back to Matthew 23, but let's just look at Tuesday for a second. Matthew 21, all of 21, turn with me, all of 22... Keep turning, all of 23. Keep turning, all of 24. Keep turning, all of 25. And the first two verses of chapter 26, that's Tuesday. That's a lot of content. Jesus is 
doing some serious teaching about the hypocrisy of Israel and the future of Israel in light of that hypocrisy. But let's turn and let's actually read in chapter 23, starting at verse 37. 2337. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to him, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus speaks of the temple's destruction. In fact, he had said, you know the verse where Jesus says, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. He's quoting both Isaiah and Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, that context that he's quoting is Jeremiah talking to the people of the first temple, referring back to when God destroyed Shiloh, where the tabernacle originally was. And Jeremiah's point was, look, if God destroyed Shiloh, God's going to destroy this first temple. Jesus quoting Jeremiah's point is, look, if God destroyed Shiloh and God destroyed the first temple, then God can destroy the second temple too. And he did. It's exactly what he did. And so here's the principle for the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount reminds us that if we trust in anything other than God, he may remove it to realign our devotion. If we trust in anything other than God, he may remove it to realign our devotion. In Jeremiah's day, there was this phrase that if you read Jeremiah, you see it says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were all jazzed about the fact that the temple of the Lord was there. We're safe. I mean, God's temple is here. And Jeremiah says, don't, don't say the temple of the Lord. I can destroy this temple. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen with the second temple. And on the Mount of Olives, um, chapters 24 and following, these several chapters of what's called the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus very specifically explains the future of Israel in light of the rejection. Interesting, he's on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples ask about his coming. Because his first coming was on the Mount of Olives, and his second coming will be on the Mount of Olives. So it's kind of, a, kind of neat that, that that was put together. All right. Well, as Dr. Toussaint says, we've got a mock schnell or schmell or what is it? Mock schmell. We've got to hurry. We're supposed to really stop at 10 o'clock? Yes. Okay. 10 o'clock. All right. So I've got five minutes to do half a message. No problem. Let's see. Just forget this part. All right. Well, let's, let's talk. Let's just fly through the principle. We may not be able to read all the, all the scripture text, but I'll give it to you if you'd like to jot it down. Um, so Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 and following, is the conversation, the context of the upper room. And in this, we have a great principle. 
about the Western Hill. The Western Hill, or the, the left bun. You remember that? The left bun is the Western Hill? Here's the principle. The Western Hill re- reminds us that confident commitments must be aligned with regular alertness and dependent prayer. Otherwise, we will fail. Confident commitments must be aligned with regular alertness and dependent prayer. Otherwise, we will fail. This is Peter in the upper room where Peter is told by Jesus, you will deny me three times. Peter says, no, I won't. I'll never do that. That's a confident commitment. And then the uh, context that goes on in Gethsemane, remember Jesus comes to to the sleeping disciples and he says to Peter, could you not stay with, awake with me one hour and pray? Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, that's where we get this principle from. We all desire, like Peter, to be faithful to Christ. There is not a Christian in this room that would not stand up and amen what Peter said. I will never deny you. That's what we want. But it isn't always what we do. And Christ tells Peter in the garden, the spirit is willing. You want to be faithful, but the flesh is weak. Do you have a plan for your weak flesh? Do you know the weakness of your flesh? Or do you just kind of hope nothing bad happens today? If you're alert in your Christian life, you should see the pattern of your failure. Because you typically fail in the same places. Whether it's your tongue, whether it's your eyes, whether it's your covetous heart. You fail in the same place. You see a pattern of that. You have a plan for that? Make a plan. Be alert. And it's fascinating that it's Peter in 1 Peter that says, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, seeks to, like a, 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 prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. Be alert. It's the same idea that Jesus says here. Regular alertness and dependent prayer. And I call it dependent prayer because that's what prayer is. It's not just prayer, but you're depending on God. God, I can't. I have weakness. I can't make it through today without you, without your strength. There's one more verse I'd like you to just jot down, and we won't read it, but just jot down 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And you understand why when Judas failed, he hung himself, and when Peter failed, he just had a good cry. There's a difference between these two other than the fact that that one was not a believer and one was uh, fulfilled the scripture of the betrayal, but lift the principle from their lives and it's true of us. The sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10 basically says, the sorrow that leads to death. Uh, There's there's guilt. Your guilt, I'll summarize it in, in this way. Your guilt can lead you one of two directions. To sin's penalty or to sin's remedy. Judas took sin's penalty and ironically hung himself in the Hinnom Valley, which Jesus likened to hell. I wonder if Judas did that on purpose. He hung himself in the valley that Jesus likened to hell, the Hinnom Valley, at Acaldema. But Peter sought sin's remedy. Your guilt is to lead you to God's grace. You got guilt? You don't have to take sin's penalty. Take sin's remedy, God's grace. Which leads us to the next principle in Gethsemane. Gethsemane. 
And if you want to jot down a couple of verses, jot down Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. And you can contrast two decisions that were made in two gardens. Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Eden, all mankind was hurled into sin. Garden of Gethsemane, all mankind was potentially saved from sin. Two men, first Adam, made the decision that all men basically were hurled into sin. The last Adam, Christ, reversed that. The Garden of Gethsemane reminds us that the only path to peace is surrender. Jesus modeled that when he said, not my will, but yours be done. You're struggling with a decision. You don't know what to do. Do what Christ, pray pray what Christ prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And the final principle um, relates to the empty tomb. And that is, the empty tomb reminds us that our sins are forgiven. Yes, we know that. But here's the next part. And we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Jot down Romans 4, 25 through uh, the first couple of verses of chapter 5. And rather than turn there, let me just basically summarize what it says for you. Paul says that Jesus was put to death for our transgressions. Let Let me say it again. He was put to death because of our transgressions. The Greek is very specific. He's put to, get, he put to death because of our transgressions, and he was raised, same word, because of our justification. In other words, Jesus died for our sins. Because we're sinners, Jesus died. We know that. But did you know that Jesus' resurrection, he was raised because your sins are forgiven? That's why he was raised. You ever wonder if the terrible things that you've done have somehow negated you and taken you out of God's plan? Now, before you're a Christian, sure. But after you're a Christian, read Romans 4.25 through the first couple of verses of chapter 5. He was put to death because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. My friend, the resurrection, when you think of the Passion Week and you think of Easter and you think of that empty tomb, let it not simply remind you that your sins are forgiven, but let it remind you that you have peace with God because of his son. One more note, at the very bottom of the handout, um, I invite you to watch, I put together a virtual tour of the Passion Week, a video series And if you go to that website right there, you can watch it. It's uh, me basically walking through Jerusalem and giving you uh, a a guided tour of the Passion Week. I I hope you'll look at it. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful to you for your, your, your word that takes us through the Passion Week, not only in a blow by blow event, but in a practical way. And that each of these six locations gives us six principles that we can apply to our life. But let's just land on that last one. Thank you. Thank you not only that Jesus died for our sins. We know that. But let it also sink in very deeply that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that you, Father, have accepted his payment 
his death on our behalf, his resurrection is proof positive of our propitiation, of your satisfaction in Jesus' death on the cross. So as we say amen and as we move on, remind us in those moments of great guilt and conviction that we have peace with God because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.